we are actually bringing our Christmas series, we're calling Faith Like a Child, to an end here as we continue to explore this idea of what it might look like for us to be childlike in one way or another in terms of our journey with God. And this weekend, what we're going to do, and just kind of just so we understand how to interact with this passage we're going to look at, is I'd like us to look at an account that definitely speaks to the coming of Christ, but it's actually about a year or so removed from his birth. It's commonly associated with his birth, but it's a year or so removed. And what we're going to see is two different uh, ways of responding to him. We're going to see what I'm going to say are, well, we're going to see a stark contrast here. And what I'm hoping we'll be able to receive from it is something of a model for us, a posture for us to be able to take for the new year. And so we'll just go ahead and jump into this. We're, we're going to find this passage in Matthew chapter 2 in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you open up your handout, you'll see there's a good amount of scripture here. But, um, you know, we'll walk through it. So we're told in verse 1, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. From the very beginning, Matthew sets the table for us in a way that he somehow assumes his readers to understand the dynamics at play here. He introduces us to this town, Bethlehem, in this region of the world, in Judea, which is in modern-day Israel, it's in the southern region of Israel, and this other city, Jerusalem, widely known. Many throughout the world understand what we speak of when we speak of Jerusalem. Speaks about these group of men, these wise men, actually oftentimes historically referred to as three wise men. But as you can see, the actual account doesn't enumerate how many people there were. We don't know. Long, a long time ago, people settled on the idea of three wise men because there were three distinct different types of gifts. But that being said, there was also another character Matthew introduces us to, which is this man, King Herod. Now, the wise men traveled from the eastern land, which in modern day we could say was the Arabic region of the world. And we know this. We know that that region of the world had a thorough understanding for the celestial maps. They understood stars. And they weren't just um, in any way superstitious in any way, shape, or form. In fact, there was some real science that was attributed to the Egyptians. And there was an understanding that people who, who were from this region, especially these wise men, were an educated class. They were of royal stature, who had of an intellect caliber to be able to know the stars. And they had discerned, according to what they understood, that this was a time in history unlike any other. The child was born that was promised from long ago. And so they draw near to the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. But King Herod, we may not know, was not any, any other king. He was a king unlike any Israel really has ever known because he was a king that was installed by Rome. And I know this is a lot of history, but it's good for us to understand this. See, Rome, when they conquered Israel, they renamed Israel Palestine, which is why oftentimes today the country of Israel is referred to as Palestine that region. It was Rome who did it. And they installed this king, Herod, to make sure that this region of the world would remain loyal to them. And the way Herod carried out his authority was, it was brutal in nature. 
It was um, very dark. In fact, one of, many historians have written about him in many ways, but uh, one of the historians, one book that I was reading, was, which is called The First Days of Jesus, kind of gives us a little bit of a snapshot, be able to see what kind of man King Herod was. And I thought I'd share this with you just for us to be able to understand the dynamics at play here. We're told that Herod had 10 wives and many children. Not uncommon for that day. People of royalty and of means. But the palace, the authors say, the palace intrigue was thick throughout Herod's reign because this included plots, assassination attempts, deception, and treachery by almost everyone around him. Over the years, this led Herod to execute his own wife and three of his sons. Among many other relatives and conspirators, Herod lived among people he could not trust and he regularly feared for his life and throne. And this uncertainty and upheaval led Herod to make six different wills. Think about that. He changed the wills based upon whom he thought he could trust and alternately which son had recently plotted to kill him. This is Herod. This is Herod. This is the picture of a man who is sitting on a throne in control and in power, and yet a man who is more insecure than any other in the land. That's the picture. And his insecurity causes him to have deep paranoia. Paranoia, by the way, that keeps him guarded, that ends up causing him to do some just amazingly awful things. It's clear he stops at nothing to protect his territory. And so, we understand this man who was used to having his power and his very own life put in danger by even those who would be closest to him was not going to be happy about the news these wise men brought. Because why? These wise men drew near, filled with their knowledge and their intellect, and they, and they understood what was happening at the time. And they, they draw near and they say, hey, there is a child born in your land who has promised to be king. Where is he born? And this news that the wise men consider good news ends up causing Herod to do what? It says Herod was deeply disturbed. Deeply disturbed. And was everyone else in Jerusalem. Why? Because Herod's disturbance often meant havoc for everyone else. And so what does he do? This is what everyone, the leadership in Jerusalem is wondering. How will Herod respond? Because there is a newborn threat in his midst. So Matthew tells us in verse 4, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. The prophet, they're referring to a minor prophet in the Older Testament, a man named Micah. He wrote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. They Essentially, he calls together a council. This King Herod didn't understand religious things too much. So what did he do? He brought the scholars near to him who thoroughly understood the scriptures. And then they told him, he asked the simple question, Where is the Messiah, the promised one? From God, supposed to be born. They tell him, oh, clearly, in Bethlehem is the city. That's the town where he will send him. So Herod now understands. He puts two and two together. 
The wise men are referring to this Messiah. The scholars let him know where the town is. You know what this tells us? Herod completely understood the nature of the child, the time he was in. He knew, yes, indeed, God's hand was actually on this. That's, that's what we're led to believe, which means that Herod wasn't in a place of ignorance. He had received insight. He was told clearly. And it means Herod now had a decision to make, doesn't it? It meant that Herod was now in a position in which he would decide one of two responses, at the very least. One would be to align with what God was doing to agree with it and to join in what was God was doing. The other response would be to continue to go back to his old ways and to resist vehemently. That would be the tension poles for him. And we see what he does. He implements a different type of plan. We're told in verse 7 that then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. It's his way of saying, okay, you guys want to know where? The town is called Bethlehem, according to my scholars. And so what I want you to do is I want you to go, I want you to find him. You make sure it's him. And then you come back and you let me know, because I too want to honor him and pay my respects. I want to worship him, ascribe him worth. I want to do that now. The wise men didn't know what we know. He had no such intention. He had no desire to worship the child king. What he wanted to do was far more insidious, actually, far more dark. But the wise men have no idea, and so they make their way. In verse 9, we're told that after this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. This star, this mysterious star, this celestial reality that occurred over 2,000 years ago. Many have speculated what it could have been. Maybe a comet, perhaps. Perhaps it was the alignment of planets that made it look like a star that just shone over the town of Bethlehem. They don't really know. What they know is that these wise men, the scientists of their day, were behaving and acting and responding according to what they knew. However simple it may be, or however more complex that is what they did. And they respond in verse 10. We're told that when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And they entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These men of an educated standing, men of royalty, of means, ended up drawing near to this house where they probably did not expect, in fact, they expected Jerusalem to, to be very apparent, very, very uh, aware of this child, but they didn't see that. What they saw was an unknown child in an unknown location, and so they drew near to this humble setting, simple place, and what did they do? They, they, they worshipped him. Grown men worshiping a child. If we just consider that, grown, educated men of means bowing down to a child and ascribing worth to him. This is the one promised by God. 
And what do they do? They bring out gifts. Gold, speaking of royalty, is what is given to a king or one of a royal class. Frankincense, incense given in a temple. It's offered up as something generated towards God himself. And myrrh, which would be speaking towards what one uses to prepare a body for burial in their day. Each element speaking of the different aspects of the consequence of this life. Each element intentionally chosen. You know what they did? They, they, they did not choose these by accident. They chose these intentionally. And you know what they're actually doing here? What we're seeing in this act is what would be called a tribute. When one nation would give a tribute to a greater nation, when one would seek alliance with another kingdom, that is what is actually, that is what is unfolding here. A tribute is being given to this child king. And it's a statement. It's a statement being made. It's, um, it's a declaration. What's the declaration? We align with you. We do more than that. We, we bow to you. And we, whatever happens in your life, from the very beginning, we're saying we want to be friendly toward it. Our realm, our kingdom, our sphere is friends with yours. It's a, a decision that was made to make this journey. It's a posture that was intentionally taken. It was beyond custom. It was something sincere and powerful. In front of Jesus' own parents, this unfolds. We're told that after that time, perhaps some words were exchanged. Maybe some things were said. They were left unwritten, we're told in verse 12, when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God intervened, had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. And after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. That is, the one who was married to Mary. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And there it is. This is how Herod will respond. To what I am doing. He is coming after you. And so I want you to leave. And that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. And this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. The Older Testament speaks of this verse. I called my son out of Egypt. Because Jesus was born in, the, in, in Israel and in Bethlehem, and the first destination out of there was Egypt. So... Out of Africa, God called his son later. This is what is being said. Now, Herod was furious. This is what we're told in verse 16. When he realized that the, other, that the wise men had outwitted him, he had, they had not fallen prey to his deception. He was revealed for what he was. And we're told he sent soldiers. And look at, look at this unbelievable, I mean, truly dark, evil place. He chooses to go. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance, this, this hideous act actually ends up being recorded in history, in Jewish history, as one of the most sorrowful periods in their time. Where the streets are filled with mothers mourning 
Fathers distraught, powerless to do anything about it. Their hopes and dreams in their children, gone. All because of a man's insecurity. All because of a man feeling threatened by a child. A child. A child. Because of all that he represented. This is what is actually being shown here. You know what this also tells us? It tells us that the account, the account shows us, listen, Jesus was born into the heap of controversy. That his life from the very first breaths to the final breaths were, was a life of significant consequence. It threatened power structures, even as a baby, threatened the powers of his day. It, it caused some to celebrate, filled with joy, others to oppose with nothing short of just Dark violence and anger. This is what we're shown here. We're shown also two polar opposite ways of how to respond to what God may want to do in in someone's life. We're shown one side that just vehemently opposes and the other side that goes the extra mile to join in what God is doing. One filled with anger and hatred, insecurity, looking out for your own, their own, his own. If you threaten me, it's over. We're done. You're as good as dead to me. On one end. And on the other, the exact opposite. I'm not threatened. I want to be a part of it. I want to join. That's the spectrum. Now, somewhere in that spectrum, there could also be indifference. This idea that, you know what, it's good for you, not for me. I don't really, I'm okay. That's also possible. Wherever we might land, I think this actually, the wise men su- supply us with a little bit of a model of how to consider posturing ourselves for the coming year. And so in the remaining moments we have here, I'd like us to look at this through the lens of what it might look like to posture ourselves. See, a posture for the new year is what we're going to look at. And I'm going to say that the wise men model what? A willingness to be open to the new thing God wants to do. That is what they model. That, that is what they show us, right? Because what, what do they do? The wise men themselves, they set out on a journey based on what they knew. They understood something was up, but they didn't have the whole big picture. They didn't understand every single detail. You know what they did? They pulled on the thread they had in their hand and they would see if it would lead anywhere. One step at a time. That's what they did. They used what they knew. They used what they understood. They, they figured out God is up to something and I want to see what it is. I'm open. I'm curious. And I'll figure this out. This, that's what they did. They set themselves out on a journey, a long journey. Look, modern day technology, it would be somewhat of an inconvenience. Think about months of an inconvenience. And they, they set their time aside, their resource aside. They made this journey. They were, they were open to what God was doing. They were curious about it. They were wanting, they were interested in it. And I just wonder what it would look like, especially for some of us who may not be accustomed to considering what God may want to say to us personally, what God may want to do in our own lives. What would it look like wherever we might be in this year? Because listen, some of us, if we could put it this way, we, we're just happy the year is over. There are some things that went on this year that we just think, boy, I'm just glad that's behind me. We're happy we survived. We made it. And that is reason to be joyful. It's like, I'm here. That's a big deal. 
But wherever we might be, I want, what would it look like for us? Others of us, we might have, we might go a little bit beyond just being, we, we might already have next year, 2016, the entire year, 365, it's planned. We understand what's going to happen, how it's, we have our agenda, and no one's getting in our way. We're executing it. You know, wherever we might, others of us, gosh, it's like, I have no idea. I have no idea what's going, wherever we might fall, what would it look like in the coming days, especially on the other side of a week filled with so much activity for us to slow down, set some time aside, and just ask the question sincerely, God, what do you want to do in my life? I have my plans. I have my desires. I have my hopes and my dreams, but God, I want to listen. What do you want to do in my life? See, that's what it looks like to be open, to consider, and then to just wait. Because he will speak. He will speak. We take one step at a time. We might have an abundance of understanding. We might have nothing. We, it's just like we're just, we just understand this much. That's okay. One step. I'm open to you, God. 2016, I want to be open to you. I want to be more open to you. There might be something new God wants to do inside of us, others of us. We might have some struggles, some challenges. It's so hard not to get cynical. It really is. Not to get skeptical because especially when we start something, there is something of an internal battle that occurs where we start to be filled with so many doubts. Why? Because we have experienced failure at such profound ways in our past. We wonder if it's ever going to be possible for us. And yet, it may be that God wants to do something new we've never experienced in our lives before. And all he's, he's not asking us, he's not saying, are you capable? He's saying, are you willing? Are you willing? That's what they model, a willingness. You know what they also model? They also show us what? They, they show us that, that it is good to embrace the posture of humility. That's what they model. They model a willingness to embrace the posture of humility, to... If you can think of it this way, these are men who were educated, men who were wealthy, men who had accomplished certain things. They, had, they were accustomed to a certain social status. And what do they find? They find an unknown child in an unknown region, unknown to the powers that be, in a location that is, if we could, it's humble, it's simple, with modest parents. And what do they do? They bow before the child. You know what? They, they model that it's not... Listen, if you could, Jesus was not beneath them. They were not too proud for him. They did not look down upon him, disregard him. He was but a child, and yet they did not do that. They embraced. So it's a one step further. It's beyond the place of being open. It's the place of saying, what you say to me, I embrace. How, what you respond to me, God, I am there, and I embrace it. It's a willingness to, you know what humility does to us? It gives us the ability to be patient in our season and to not be filled with frustration when things don't go our way, when things don't end up as ideal as we thought they were. A lot of times, especially in life, we, we engage in something where we have a picture of this, this is going to be amazing, and then reality hits, and it's not 
amazing. It's hard work. It ends up being something that grieves us a little bit. It disappoints us sometimes. It causes some degrees of suffering, but it is there. It, can you hear? It is there that God actually births something new. When we are willing to do that, it is in the breaking of the soil that the seed is able to be planted. It's there. It's when the, our soul is soft and moldable and open to what he wants to put inside of us. There, when we, are, when we humble ourselves, that we end up discovering he he longs to do something some of us we might already be moving forward with God and this year maybe this season it's not going quite how we expected and the word we might want to consider is to not despise a day of small beginnings to not look down upon the meager results we might see right now especially when God is trying to do something inside of us whether it's launching something and we may not have as much traction as we would like, or whether it's engaging in something internal and we're not getting the progress we would want, or maybe it's something relational. God is asking us, will you be the one who humbles yourself and people, we do it and they don't respond. We say sorry, they don't. Don't despise that. You do it. Humble yourself. This is the year. To position ourselves that way it gives us the ability to be surrendered. It gives us the ability to be agile emotionally. It gives us the ability to adapt to the different changes and shifts in our year, especially if we're of the more organized type where everything has its place. I understand that type. But it is humility that gives us the ability to say, well, Lord, I'm open to you. I embrace what you want to do. Life is messy sometimes, but um, when we embrace it, it can be extremely beautiful. Because what, what do they also show us? They model something else. They model what it looks like to give a hope-filled offering. A posture for the coming year. And this is the way I think of it. They drew near to the one they knew would be king. And they didn't come asking they came giving. They drew near to the one who had been spoken of as the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And they didn't come in, they came doing what? They came giving. I give. And a lot of times we might be accustomed to receiving. We might be accustomed to being recipients of other people's goodness in our lives. We might be accustomed to uh, being the ones who others encourage, others speak life into, others hear us, others listen to us when we are discouraged or when we're in pain and they comfort us and they're, they're the ones who give to us. And that might be great. It may be that this is a season where God might be saying, now your turn. Now it's your turn to be the one who gives. I wonder if 2016 is the year some of us, not all of us, but some of us, he might be nudging forward to say, this is the year you're supposed to give to others. This is the year you're supposed to speak life to others, encourage others, speak words of grace to others. This is the year you hold your tongue a little bit more. You listen and you give the gift of compassion to suffer with another. This is that year. It could be the year we give over resource to his good work. 
It might be the year we commit ourselves and we say, Lord, out of what you have given to me, I will give to you to what you are doing. This is the year. I will do that. Maybe it's that. Others of us, listen, we might be accustomed to giving to people. We, we are some, I have met people that are generous towards others. And maybe it's not necessarily towards people. It may be that God is saying, I invite you to give to me. To give to my work. To speak a good word in my name. To offer your time for, for what I want to do in other people's lives. To align with what I'm doing that's going to affect eternal things. It may be that we have been observants, passive observers of what is going on around us. And this is the time, this is the year that God is saying it's time for you to stand up and be a participant. To roll up your sleeves. To engage in what I am doing in other people's lives. To take the risk of praying for others. To take the risk of learning my words so that maybe you can give somebody an encouraging word one day. To be the one who stands up for me. To be the one who declares my worth. Maybe this is the year. You're active. Participate. You know what? Who was filled with joy? The wise men. Who, was the, who were the ones who were filled with, with gratitude? It was the ones who ended up drawing near. They were open. They embraced. And they got a front row seat. A front row seat to all that God was doing. There. In that place, in that posture, in the childlike place before the child, we find, I think, a great model for how to transition from this year that has passed and the new year that is coming. May that be the case. May we prepare our hearts. May we reflect, yes. May we become grateful. May we be open to what he wants to do. May we embrace what he longs to say and do in our lives. And may we be the ones who get to give the privilege of giving in his name. May that be the case. Now, in a moment, we're going to receive our, our time of giving and our closing song. But I would like to just pray, ask for his blessing as we consider this together. And um, so I'll just go ahead and do that. And so, Lord, we just uh, we thank you. We thank you that you're, you're a God of new beginnings. You're a God of second, third, fourth many chances. You offer us opportunities, God, to draw near to you. You never abandon us. You never forsake us. But you long to always make us more aware of what you are doing all around us. And so I pray that you would help us. You would help us take full advantage of this final week of the year. Help us position ourselves. Help us enter 2016 in a childlike way that is open to you is willing to embrace you, is willing to experience your life coursing through our soul. I pray for this. I ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.